Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Something a lot of people forget, Tom, is that phase one is about agreeing to withdraw from the European Union. That's phase one. Then you've got to agree what the future relationship looks like. There's still a lot of work to be done. And as you point out, Tom, an agreement between the EU and the British government, now we've got to get it through Parliament. Headline just crossed in a Bloomberg that according to party officials, the DUP won't vote for Johnson's Brexit deal. I want to try and re-establish that connection with Roslyn Matheson now, Bloomberg Executive Editor for International Government. Ros, great to have you with us. Let's just talk about what's been agreed between Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the EU and why the DUP is still against this deal. Yeah, so as you said, we're just getting news crossing uh, the wire now that the DUP says it won't vote for Johnson's Brexit deal. He's going to put it towards before Parliament uh, in the UK on Saturday. That was always the key question. And now the question really is, did Johnson jump the gun? Did he, did he get an agreement with the European Union when he still had got things ironed out at the back end in terms of lawmakers in the UK? Because uh, it's one thing to get the agreement with the EU, it's another thing to get it through Parliament. It's unclear if the DUP is still just holding out as a negotiating tactic and whether with a bit more discussion over the next 24 hours they might come on side. But what they're saying is fundamentally nothing for them has changed. Nothing in the deal that was announced today has addressed their concerns um, and that they won't be backing it on Saturday. That's a significant blow to Boris Johnson at this point in time. Ros, what is the big change in this agreement between Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the EU and the agreement between Prime Minister May and the EU? And with that in mind, what is the biggest sticking point still for the DUP? Well, it seems to be very much still around the, the issue of, the, of what you, you would call in broad terms the idea of a backstop, and that's the trading arrangements that um, avoid a hard border on Ireland um, once Brexit takes place. And that's been a key concern, obviously, of the DUP. And what we've had put forward is, in a way, a sort of a version of what Theresa May at one point put forward, which is to have customs arrangements in effect at some point in the Irish Sea and no hard border on land. Um, and that those arrangements can be transitional, that Northern Ireland can scrap them at some point if they disagree. Um, and, and that seems to be the latest version of where we're at. But the DUP just a couple of days ago was saying that that was still not OK. Um, and it sounds like Boris Johnson hasn't managed to get them over the line as a result. Negotiations might be finished in Brussels. They will continue at home. Ros, great to catch up with you as always. Roslyn Matheson there of Bloomberg. Well, we are fortunate to have with us right now in our studios in Washington someone well-timed to speak on this. For years, uh, I've known his affiliation with Schroeder's and then on to his work personally for Mark Carney, our Francine Lacroix, speaking with the governor of the Bank of England tomorrow here in Washington. But John Farrell, as you know, Q. Van Steenis has taken on new duties for UBS, the Union Bank of Switzerland, as a senior advisor. Uh, as well. And uh, Hugh von Steenis joins us this morning. Hugh, there'll be a parliamentary vote on Saturday, which will set us up for the domestic politics. Do you sense within all your reading and all your contacts that this is a general election that Prime Minister Johnson would win and that it will be a leave general election? 
Um, well, thanks, Tom. Uh, look, the, it's been very striking how in the opinion polls, uh, Boris Johnson's been able to win more support. And, you know, to get an outright majority, he'd need probably about 38% of the total uh, electorate. And he's get knocking on that door. Now, clearly, there's a lot of detail there about how it, the opposition parties will um, either tie together or, or, or splinter. Um, this Saturday is really critical because, you know, it, everyone assumed that Boris wouldn't get a deal. And he's come through and reopened the uh, backstop agreement. Um, I think it'll be very interesting to see how the DUP and the opposition respond and whether they want to tag on a referendum and then we go into a general election with a referendum or do they try and stall for time? But it's, I think the odds now are much higher. Cable fading here, Tom. Still positive on the session, but way off session highs. We are up by just a tenth of 1%. One pound, $1.2849. John Farrow, New York. I'm Tom Keenan, Washington. And again, John and I with our coverage of these IMF and World Bank meetings. And with us, Hugh Von Steenis of UBS. Hugh, let's walk away from Brexit, which is certainly front and center. And there'll be something in one hour uh, different as well. It is a most interesting set of meetings here in Washington. And the heart of the matter, and you've been a student of this for for many decades, is the multilateralness of it. There's that IMF logo of 180-whatever nations. Is it gone in the Trump world? Is our multilateralism gone? Uh, look, I, uh, I think it's a great question, Tom. I mean, certainly um, the, the behind the scenes of my conversations yesterday were really around the trade war and to what extent we can get a resolution to some of the trade war, but whether there'll be a tech war which just, just carries on. Because I think both the U.S. and China are vying for supremacy around <clears throat> tech prowess and their use in their economies. Well, what, brilliant. What's the Venn diagram of the trade war and the tech war? My guess is there's a little bit of overlap there. Oh, hu- hugely. But I, cause I, but I think what's very clear about the tech is... Um, is is there a reestablishment of supply lines? So if you if the US is not using Huawei, you know what will it be doing instead? And so I think there's this ongoing anxiety around uh, big tech and how that plays out. And you know whether it's Brexit or Europe, they're not quite sure you know which way to turn on this because we're you know beneficiary of both both large yeah, blocks. The, the heart of this is the mercantilist structure of President Trump, which is fine. It's his strong opinion, and let's be clear, he has a large number of Americans who support uh, not only on technology but on other issues as well. Do you detect a permanence here, or is it an amendment of four or eight years? Um, look, I think there'll be better people than me to judge, but uh, I th- think think the big um, challenge here is how we get uh, global growth. And it's very, very clear that the uncertainty from the trade wars has clearly been a dampener on uh, markets and on business activity. Uh, I think that we certainly hope there'll be some resolution. But maybe we've reached peak populism. It's been very striking also in whether it's, uh, whether it's Boris Johnson looking to do a deal, whether it's the Italians saying they'll no longer leave the euro, the Northern League. Maybe we've reached peak populism. But I think these underlying tensions between the big blocks, particularly in a low-growth world yeah. where everyone wants their sh- fair share or even a disproportionate share, I think these, these tensions carry on. Yvon Sinas, thank you so much. He is with UBS, a senior advisor to Mr. Armadi. Right now, this is a thrill. Jason Furman with us, uh, with his service to the country as a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama. But maybe more than anyone I know, there's a few others out there playing in the policy pond, but actually figuring out policy and applying it across all of America, the haves, the have-nots, really trying to think about 
executing and doing policy. Maybe Rick Michigan up at Columbia would be someone else like that. Uh, before we start in here, uh, Jason, and too short a conversation and celebration the other day, Michael Spence, the laureate on our London desk, with one Michael Kremer of Harvard University. You know Michael Kremer and yep. his policy action on poverty. What is original about this Nobel Prize for poverty, something we don't talk about enough? Um, it was a great Nobel Prize. Everyone I know was really excited about it. Two other There's people no, from a college. Yeah. I don't know where um, it is. Esther <laughs> Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee run, won it as well. And what you saw here is there's been a really big change in the way we think about development economics, the way we think about helping poor people in poor countries from you know huge, big, dramatic ideas to <laughs> let's do experiments, yeah. let's test, let's see what works, let's see what doesn't work. Um, and then scale it up. And that sounds easy. They've been doing that in medicine for a long time. But one, the idea to do it um, wasn't right. in economics. But two, when you do it in economics, turns out it's actually quite tricky and quite complicated to figure out how to design those experiments, how to figure out whether they'll scale up, take them to the next right. stage. And those three are in the middle of and making progress on I that question. I mentioned a Professor Kramer, Pascaline Dupas, and her work as well on malaria years ago. Great. Why can't we do this in the United States? Yeah. We're real good at extending poverty. Is it that we have a lock-in structure? Is there an Americanism where we can't translate this across our inequalities? Yeah. I mean, in that, that paper you were, I mean, Pascaline Dupas work, I mean, $200, $300 per life saved from bed nets um, for malaria. Yeah. You do insecticide-treated bed net, $300 per life saved. It is the single best thing one could possibly do um, anywhere in the world. When Why it comes to the problems in the United States, over to America. Um, yeah, we are seeing more of that. Um, there was um, something called JPAL that was founded. It's um, housed in Cambridge and it was doing experiments on development. Now they're doing some of those randomized trials. You know, here in the United States, you're seeing more of that on you know preschools. That's something we've done for a while now. The evidence is incredibly clear. I don't think we need to collect much more economic evidence that preschool is a great idea. Now it's really up to the politicians to do it. You've seen that happen in some states. Too many states haven't expanded preschool. I don't know how we can talk but about it. You, you are a great student on this. I don't mean to interrupt, but this is so critical in that uh, with great respect for the haves that distrust government spending, that's an ethos in America, clearly a successful ethos. How do we disperse our knowledge and technology to the have-nots of America? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to stick with the one I was on, whatever trust or distrust you have in government, most of us are quite comfortable with the fact that the government spends money educating children between the age of 5 and 18. You know, maybe we want the money spent differently. Maybe we want more money. Maybe we want some <clears throat> reforms. But I don't think anyone debates that, the that we have a stake in having educated um, citizens. So let's extend that to age three, extend that to age four. Same idea. Mm. Out of time. We could go. We got to. I got to come back to Washington, John, and, and, and meet with Dr. Furman. Maybe we can go see the Capitals play. You can move there if you want. Come to, come to Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'll, uh, I'll arrange that, Jason. Tom. We can Don't see worry. Bruins Canadians. That will work out as well. Jason Furman, thank you uh, so much, of course, for the Kennedy School at Harvard and his service uh, to the nation as uh, former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors.
there is just a ton of uncertainty out there. The macro risk persists as it has done over the last 18 months with trade through the last three years with the Brexit situation and it has just become so finely balanced that one incremental shift one way or another one incremental piece of news can shift perception quite radically from one week to the next to weigh in on that from New York I'm pleased to say Mona Mahajan joins us now Allianz Global Investors US investment strategist Mona let's talk about that just how finely balanced perception of the global economy is right now Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think just a few weeks ago, there was a lot of pessimism built into this marketplace driven by that weak PMI number, particularly that came out in the U.S. Interestingly, since then, and I'd say over the last couple of weeks in particular, uh, we've gotten somewhat incrementally positive news on two of the biggest overhangs in the economy, in the global economy right now. Uh, You noted U.S.-China trade as one, and then secondly, Brexit. These are two issues that have been uh, really lingering and weighing on the markets. And over the last couple of weeks, I'd say we've gotten perhaps incrementally positive steps. Now, to your point, it's always two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's been one step forward, two steps back in both trade and Brexit. Uh, We'll be watching in particular on the trade side, whether or not we can, one, come to some sort of phase one deal, but more importantly, whether or not these tariffs that have been the overhang for the consumer and the business uh, investment community can be removed. Those December 15th tariffs in particular that weigh on the consumer are important for us. Um, Aside from trade and Brexit, I would also just point out that uh, incremental news around earnings season thus far, around the yields uh, and yield curves, and then even a potential for PMI's bottoming have all helped support sentiment in our view. We'll get to the earnings and the broader issues in just a moment. Let's talk about the price levels. On the S&P 500, we found out multiple times this year that life above 3,000 points, for whatever reason, is difficult. We've mentioned this several times, Mona. I think you and I have discussed it many times too. And the same in the bond market. For the 10-year, life below 150, incredibly difficult. We've found that out time and time again over the last couple of years. Do you think we can finally break out of these very volatile trading ranges, narrow as they might be, but they have been very volatile over the last several months? Do you think we can finally break out one way or another? You know, I think that 3,000 level on the S&P is critical. And I do feel like we've been hovering at that range for about 18 months now. Um, When we look towards the end of Q4, you know, talking to our teams, we think of three potential scenarios. One is we have some sort of melt up or maybe a 10% upside going into Q4 and particularly those last few months of the year. The other two are, you know, we trade sideways. And the last and and probably least uh, impressive for investors is that we we moved downward in the last quarter. Now, given what we know thus far, um, the incremental positive steps around trade and, and Brexit, uh, the potential for a bottoming out, our base case remains that we can actually potentially see a breakout to the upside. And yeah. so I think that's where we're coming from and, and hopeful for. But data keeps coming in. And as you said, it's a weekly uh, adjustment. Yeah. Mona, I think I've mentioned this before. You have one of the coolest undergraduates going, Wharton, and also computer sciences at Pennsylvania, which, folks, is a legendary uh, double major. Are we in the middle of a binomial tree, like a la Brexit today, which John has done such a good job of covering? Is it just zero one zero one toggle switch, where if we get through these problems, we just toggle switch back to normalcy? You know, it's interesting because both of these issues have such nuances and the devil is really in the detail. You know, even if we get a trade deal, is there an overhang around enforcement? Is there an overhang that President Trump can come in any moment and arbitrarily impose tariffs anyway? I think... Uh, It comes down to the old adage, uh, markets do not like uncertainty. And so 
to the to the uh, extent we can eliminate uncertainty in the marketplace. So with trade, that would probably imply uh, removal of tariffs, but also some sort of enforcement mechanism. And also, uh, businesses should know what kind of uh, you know tariffs they're supposed to be paying. And I think that that type of certainty is important. Similarly, with Brexit, you know, is it a soft? Is it a hard? Regardless, they have a long slog ahead of them. How are they going to get through the next two to five years as well? What does that mean for the European economy and the global economy? And so, you know, when you start thinking about the, the details beyond just uh, the the binary outcomes, you start thinking about the the potential impacts uh, to the economy in a longer term basis. Uh, there are some issues to be worked out, but I do think. Um, those headlines would be incrementally positive. We absolutely. just want some of these issues resolved, don't we? These risks <laughs> have persisted for so long. I think people are exhausted and just want some clarity about what this looks like in the future. Luckily, we've got a break from these kind of stories through the next couple of weeks as the earnings come through. Uh, just before you, we let you go, Mona, I'd love your view on the bank earnings that we've had yeah. from the last 24 hours. Pretty decent so far. Yeah, you know, our, our take is that it's a positive. Um, and again, kind of leads into our story about how Q4 could end up being ultimately positive for the markets. But I think a couple of takeaways. Um, one, the banks have been lagging this year. So I think there is some room to, ca- to play catch up. And it's interesting that we've seen some of the value sectors lagging in general. Could this be a catalyst potentially for uh, banks in particular to, to play some catch up in the markets. Uh, number two, what we've been talking about this entire year is that there's a dichotomy between manufacturing and the consumer. I think this bank earnings season is really showing U.S. consumer strength is still out there. And I think that's positive for the economic story broadly. So uh, we're positive incrementally on the banks and we think that uh, could be a good sign for, for economy as well. Morgan Stanley certainly likes uh, the news this morning. The stock does anyway. The stock is up by more than 4 percent. Ernie's coming in pretty solid. Mona, great to see you. I know you've got to run. Mona Mahajan there, Allianz Global Investors, US Investment Strategist. Let's get to the story for European politics, shall we? We have an agreement between the European Union and Prime Minister Boris Johnson. A challenge for Prime Minister Boris Johnson is getting this agreement through Parliament this coming Saturday. Will he need the support of the DUP? If he does so far, the Democratic Unionist Party confirming that they will not be able to support these proposals. Putting out an emailed statement just moments ago, sterling is still positive, but barely. Cable is 128.50. That's the pound against the US dollar, 128.51. We had a session high of 129.90, so we're well off those levels. So it looks finely balanced. We have an agreement, Tom. Can the Prime Minister get it through Parliament on Saturday? Saturday? And if he can't, what's next? What comes next? And I think that's key because a lot of people are assuming that if he can't get it through this Saturday, ultimately the next step is not a hard Brexit. It's an election, although I'm not convinced either way where we are here. We have an agreement. He's managed to get some concessions from the EU. He heads to Parliament Saturday. It's very delicate. And you're not the only one yawning who's bored and sick no, and tired of all I, of this. I, I read, you know, on one volume, I was ignorant on the War of the Ro- the Wars of the Roses from like the 15th century. Just on the War of the Roses? So, I, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to read Lady Jane Grey next. But, you know, I, I'm reading this stuff from like 500 years ago. John, nothing's changed. I mean, it's the parliamentary system. You guys go on and on and on. I agree with you. Jane's yeah. got, Jane Foley's got to do Unlike this every day. Unlike our perfect system. 
Jane Foley's got to do this every day. Rubber Bank's Head of FX Strategy and Senior Analyst. She joins us out of London. Jane, your thoughts this morning, please, on the agreement that is yet to be agreed in the United Kingdom. Well, you know, as you talked about Saturday, really will be crucial. Now, in Parliament, uh, we know that Boris Johnson needs to get 320 votes to pass this deal through, and there are only 287 Tories. Now, um, also, if we look at some of the comments from Corbyn this morning, uh, Corbyn says, uh, he, of course, is the leader of the, the Labour Party, Johnson's sellout deal should be rejected. Now, there will be some rebels within the Labour Party who will vote for a deal. There are uh, a number number of Labour MPs that represent constituencies that voted leave in that referendum in, in 2016. But clearly there will be pressure on the uh, Labour MPs to reject this deal. There will be pressure from the Liberal Democrats also to reject this deal. So it's far from clear that this is going to get through. So as you rightly pointed out, the, the focus should be turning to what happens then. Uh, is it going to be a hard Brexit despite the, the, the Ben Act or is there going to be an election? I think almost irrespective of what happens, there will be an election in the, in the, in the next few months. Will Johnson be able to put his deal into a manifesto and say, look, vote Tory, there's a deal and Brexit gets done? Or will the electorate not buy that? And, and right now, there's a lot of opinion polls that suggest that, like you and like me, the electorate in the UK are sick of the Brexit negotiations. So it is possible that many people will vote for a, a party that has a deal in the bag. But on the other hand, Corbyn this morning raised the prospect of another referendum. So it seems one way or another, we will be at the polls again in the foreseeable future. So Sterling is back to where it was in mid-May. And I think we've got to go through the different permutations. Let's conclude... Just for the premise of this conversation, a basis of this conversation, that on Saturday, this agreement does not get through Parliament. The next steps are important, as you point out, Jane. To what degree is the downside in cable limited, given that most people assume that a hard Brexit won't be possible? To what degree is the downside in cable at this point, given what you know and working through the different permutations, to what degree is the downside in cable right now limited? Well, a week ago, we were trading at about 122, and, and I think we could potentially be back at 122 if a deal is off the table, assuming uh, the probability of a hard Brexit doesn't increase. Now, then what happens is, is the market begins to look to the opinion polls. It begins to, to look at the probability of a general election. Now, if there was a Johnson, uh, if there was an election, the opinion polls are currently saying that Johnson's Tory party would be the biggest party. But although support for his party has increased recently, there is still an indication that he wouldn't be able to get a majority, that there would still be a hung parliament. And there's no... Uh, confirmation now that the DUP would support um, his uh, government as they are currently doing. So in those circumstances, the opinion polls would become increasingly important. Now, if it looked as if he could get a majority, and of course he says that he can, then that would probably be very good for Sterling on the assumption that the deal that he has made would be done. But of course, again, if the Tories began to talk about a no-deal Brexit again then that would be very negative for Stoney. And Jane Foley with Rabobank uh, with us this morning. Jane, very quickly here, can you say on interest rates, we hit bottom, we've moved up. On yen, we hit yen strength, we move weaker. Is there a permanence to this latest move, even if we're still within range? 
Well, um, probably not. I mean, in terms of the, the yen, of course, there's a lot of geopolitical risk factors that can uh, impact the yen. Um, and certainly, I think in terms of foreign policy, we know that there's lots of geopolitical risks out there. In terms of interest rates, too, how much lower can we go? And, and certainly there's a big debate, certainly within, within Europe and uh, uh, even Australia now, as to whether or not negative interest rates you know, are going to prevail and, and um, um, be seen in more countries uh, than they are currently. Jane, I want to put you on the spot just to wrap up this program. Cable, sterling against the US dollar, 128.21. What do we see first, 140 or 120? Well, clearly that depends on the outcome of, uh, of uh, Brexit. Given the news that we have right now, I think probably 120 is, is more likely. If we get this deal through Parliament on Saturday, 140 becomes more likely. Jane Foley, very diplomatic, as always, very sensible. Robert Bankhead of FX Strategy and Senior Analyst, joining us out of London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.